with Chocolate Block on the radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Melty Moran, and here's what you might have missed. He, he was listening to Stop the World and Let Me Off last night while he was while he was laying down chewing his cud. Well, he's probably uh, he's, he was probably saying to himself, "Stop the world and get me out, out of this cage." <laughs> and let, cage stop yeah. the world and let me out. Boss was yelling and shouting at them so much down the phone that the neighbour could actually hear it on their balcony oh my and God. the neighbour who didn't even know this person very well called in later on to check they were okay oh my God! in a world a troubled world when we put so much store on mindfulness and, and, and meditation yeah. surely Kavanaugh is as pure as it gets and we'll start on the live line and more from the Puck Fair in Calorglan I was nearly going to go on Puck Line statement in from the Department of Agriculture again they heard that the people in the Puck Fair in Calorgan after taking down the goat yesterday before live line they did promptly put it back up yesterday evening uh, hoisted it up in the air and um, the department when they found this out rang them this morning and the goat is down according to the department on the ground and the people in Calorgan have been instructed not to put the goat back up this year so it's definitely um it's, it's definitely generated some uh, debate about animal welfare. It's also generated the most incredible slew of headlines that some of them definitely deserve an award. The goat escape. This is really bad. It's two puck king hot, which I, I think wins it. That's in the star. It's two puck king. Two words, by the way. Hot. The puck stops here. It's just a, another example. Uh, Declan Nerney. Declan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. How, how are you doing? How are you keeping? Great. Now, never was better. I heard 10,000 people turned up to see you last night in Kilauglin. Well, the, 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 the 10,000 people uh, tuned in or was in uh, Kilauglin yesterday. And yes, last night, and we had a, an almighty great session, I have to say. And was among the 10,000 people, was there a kid called King Buck? Buck? Uh, my, friend, my, my friend was there as well. He was on, he was on the... He was on his mound there. And, and where uh, where were you in relation to him? Could he see you? Uh, he had his back to me an awful lot of the time. I could see him, but he, he was he was enjoying it. <laughs> I think he was enjoying the music at the same time. So he was above you on the stage, so to speak. Well, he was above me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's quite a little height up. Yeah. Yeah, I got ten thousand people. What's what's that look like on a in a well, small it, town? It, it was an incredible an incredible scene, and it was an incredible atmosphere and. Uh, were people from all over the country, people from all over, a lot of people from even visitors from Europe and all sorts of stuff, because they, they, they're like these sort of festive things that's happening in Ireland and uh, part of uh, our tradition, Absolutely. I suppose. Yeah. And, what mm. did, and was it, I don't know, well, I know you're one of the biggest in the country, so you, you put on a big show, don't you, Declan? Sound, well, well, lights, the whole it. shebang. We 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 we, we uh, aim to please Joe as best we can, and uh, we, we I think we... we, we uh, it happened last night uh, in in uh, Kilorglan. And what time? What time did you go on stage at? We went on stage at, at um, a quarter to ten, nine okay, forty-five so, to, to nine, two so twelve, so to eleven forty-five. So it's dark, and what? Yeah. And you got a, you got a great reception. Did anyone talk to you about the goat? Well, it, it, there was a general uh, chat about us, you know, about how how uh, what what was the situation on the on us, and uh, how come now uh, that there was. Uh, a big floor about us now. Uh, because in we're in, we're in the middle of years. Because we're in the middle of a heat wave. Middle in a heat wave, and that uh, all of this, and I think that the the, the 
the people in their wisdom took the goat down off their office heights during the hot day and uh, well they were told was, to take it down by the department yeah and he was well looked after so I would I would come from a rural background myself Joe a farming background and I would understand exactly so enough we all, we all do don't we yeah, in animals and stuff and, and uh, I would be an animal lover and I would yeah. be definitely against anybody having any cruelty to animals of any kind and I, I wouldn't be into course you know that all, all that sort of sport uh, either being honest about it and um, I would say of the 10,000 people that was there last night they, there's not one of them would, would have wanted to see a hair damaged at that animal's back yeah, but what, I wonder what it felt like I love your uh, your music is so popular and so melodic as well and foot, foot tapping um, he was he he was listening to stop the world and let me off last night while he was while he was laying down chewing his cud. Well, he's probably uh, he, was, uh, he was probably saying to himself, "Stop the world and get me out of this cage, <laughs> and let, cage stop the yeah. world and let me out." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He probably could have been. You never know. And Joe played some voice notes on the situation, starting with vet Pete Weatherburn. Pete Weatherburn here. I'm Pete the vet, and I'm here to talk about the puck fair. So as far as I can see, it's a tradition that's valued immensely by the local community. But for me, I think it's important that we don't just blindly follow what we've always done. Instead, we should thoughtfully apply contemporary ethics. And what that means in particular is that our understanding of animal sentience has changed significantly in the last 30 years. And just as bullfighting is no longer seen as acceptable, in my view, Perhaps it's time to allow the King of Puck to stand down, to be replaced by a, a non-sentient representation of a goat. Hi Joe, this is Rachel Pilkington. I think like most other people nationally and internationally, I've made my thoughts extremely clear on social media about the injustice of using a wild animal in this regard. Going forwards, I think it's time to just focus all our time and attention and energy on the option going forwards, the alternative going forwards, which is that live animals are not involved in any kind of fair or festival. And this is a perfect opportunity to support local artists by commissioning a piece that could be a piece of sculpture that could be erected in the town um, of a goat, of a wild mountain goat, that um, has a little piece of history attached and simultaneously is supporting the arts and indeed demonstrating the importance of compassion for animals going forwards. And it overthrows tradition and shows Kerry in a brand new light going forwards. It's a beautiful, beautiful county which is loved by the people of Ireland. And I think it's time to take the negative press away from it and focus on change. Um, it's, it's not acceptable to be using animals at any kind of fair or festival any longer. It's 2022. The people have spoken and it's time for change. Hi, my name is Helen. I'm calling from Greystones. I just want to register my absolute disgust at the fact that that poor goat in Kiloglan has been taken down and then hoisted back up again today. It seems to me to be even more cruel to do that. Release the goat back into the wild where he belongs. OK, send us in messages or voice messages on WhatsApp to 087-1843-709, 1843-709, and we'll get them out before... 
the end of the programme. The Department of Agriculture again. Department has today, Friday, again been in contact with the independent private veterinary practitioner attending the Calogran Puck Fair and welcomes the decision of the organisers which has been communicated to the department to take the goat down at 10.30 this morning. It was 11.30 yesterday. And not to put them back up on the raised platform again during this year's fair. So Declan, the, the goat has been liberated. Yeah, it's been liberated. You know, I, I, there has to be a happy medium, I'm, I'm sure, somewhere in the middle of all of that there that, uh, you know, that the people hold on. There's a, now, there is a, um, a figurine of, 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 of a ghost going into the town of a huge, uh, big uh, puck ghost mm-hmm. going into that, uh, into Kilorglan, and uh, it is. But it's, I suppose it's... Look, I'm not on the committee of Kilorglan oh, uh, here and... and uh, you know, I only joined in with the story of it sort of yesterday, uh, Joe. So, mm. uh, like she, uh, Oliver Goldsmith, there's nobody uh, qualified to give advice, not those who the brunt of it themselves. And then Miriam called Joe. Well, j- just after listening to Declan there, he, he calls himself an animal lover, but yet subjected that animal to blaring music till all hours last night. And as you said, like, um, anyone with any ounce of intelligence intelligence would know that that's not right. That mm. is obviously causing the animal distress, anxiety, and to him to laugh even there, to say, well, it's tradition, blah, blah, blah. I don't care if it's tradition. Who cares? It's causing the animal distress. But his pockets are getting lined. The pockets of the people down in Kerry are getting lined. So who cares if the animal is getting mistreated? Because at the end of the day, it's all about money. And he can say, oh, you have a point there, Joe. But that animal was hoisted up in the air. And until the public went on social media and RTE put it on the on the headlines, then they took the animal down. They put up this post on Instagram stating that they had the animal's welfare in mind constantly. No, they didn't. It was only taken down because they were told to take it down. So Declan can laugh all he likes and go on about tradition. Well, you did laugh though, Declan. Sorry, but you did. Sorry, but you did laugh and you got paid for it. And you stood there on the stage blaring out your music, which I wouldn't subject anyone to, regardless, even never mind a ghost. And you got paid for that and that goes. Well, 10,000 people people turned up and Declan regularly sells out Glen Eagle, some of the biggest venues in the country. But that's not a good idea. Well, that's my opinion. Anyway. Then Ali called Joe from her painted cage in Calorglan. So um, I'm just beside where the goat is and I've painted a cage around myself. So I'm mirroring what the goat does. So I can't leave my cage until the goat um, is set free and sent home. So I was hope I, I asked yesterday, look, please send the goat home early because yeah. I really want to get out of this box. Um, it's, it's a painted box around myself. But it's not happening, so it seems I'll be here probably till 6pm today for the scheduled release of him. Um, I don't have much battery, and I've no charger here, obviously, because I'm just on the ground. But I just want to say, yes, you hit the nail on the head. It is about, um, you know, some people see this as um, a, a welfare issue. Other people say, oh, he's treated like a king. He's got this and that and the other. And I can say, people have been coming and giving me water. Um, I have food here. I, uh, they've given me shade. They've given me sun cream. They, and I can vouch, yes, I have food and water like the goat. Yes, I have a, a fan, my own little handheld uh, manual fan. And I can still vouch 
for the fact that I really want to get out of this box. It doesn't matter if I have food and water. It's not normal to be crouched up in this tiny space for this long. What's the temperature like beside the goat now, Ali? Um, so it's it's hot. Um, a, a medical person came up and like took the air temperature around me, um, and it's I think it was like 0.3 degrees lower where the goat was or something. But basically, yeah, it, it is really hot. But my main concern isn't actually the heat anyway, like or the food or the water. They have to go capture this goat. Okay, well, describe and chase them. Describe the cage because you're right beside. Describe the cage that the goat is in. So, okay, so he was hoisted up. On, it's, like, really small. Like, he wouldn't have any room to walk or, like, even turn around. Like, it's now because it got sunny, they put him on the ground floor of the of the tower thing. Well, they were told, they were instructed shade. by the Department of Agriculture this morning to take him down again. Yeah. And not, and not, to, like, put, not to put him back up. Yeah, but the fact is, even though he's on the ground floor, okay, he's still stuck in a cage. Yeah, you know, I know, that's why I know, I'm I know. still in the cage. And, like, even if it was finer weather, even And if what reaction are you getting? Dec- Declan, who... Declan Ernie says, you know, uh, uh, Addy, what re- are the locals supporting you or saying you're barking um, you know, up the wrong ghost? You know, most of them have been, like, even the ones who disagree with me have been, like, supportive of the fact that I am here just expressing and communicating a message. Um, like, obviously, there has been some people who, like, are a bit in a bad mood with me, but, like, I... Like nothing, nothing too bad. Like most people have been unbelievably and did you like, say that, did friendly you s- and helpful. So you painted this cage around yourself yesterday, and yeah. surely you came out at night time to go to the loo or something or sleep. Um. So basically, to absolutely match the ghost exactly, I like I'm gonna have to like be in the cage when I when I need to go. But then I judged it like, and I was like, look, if I do that, I think it's gonna take it a step too far, and like, you know, every like I was like, I'm probably it's probably gonna get shut down. So the guards, um, the, the guard station is right here, and they let me go to the um, toilet in there, and also the Euros bar let me go to the toilet. Um, okay, but just but you so stay you stayed in your own cage, the size of the goat's cage. You've been there apart from a tidal break for the last what 24 hours. Okay. By the time I travelled down from Dublin and okay, you went to travelled. Okay. So, so was, I've been here since in the cage since half seven, apart wow. from a toilet break. Wow. That's Ali. Then later, Fiona called Joe. I'm listening to you all week. Um, I have been out in Puck Fair for the last two days, and I intend on heading out again today. Um, I just want to say thanks, actually, for everyone complaining because this year was actually the best crack. Uh, the best crowds there, uh, everyone is in good form. The gold, as usual, is well looked after. Every point, really, that has been made on this show is confusing me. Number one, they're saying that this goat is in a higher temperature in Pock Fair than he would be on top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. They don't find shade on a mountain. They are in this heat, the same heat that they're in now. I realise he's in a cage. Um, but the other point that I don't a cage, understand... A cage? You've seen the cage, have you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it true what Ali Brady said, who's basically chained herself to the cage down there, metaphorically? She's not moving from the same space until the goat gets liberated. But uh, do you agree with Ali Brady that the, the goat couldn't turn around in the cage? No, that is 100% not true. Like Declan said, because I was there last night, 
the goat actually turned around when he was singing. Uh, he had plenty of room and then he laid down towards because we were going from looking at the goat. I think everybody is more focused on the goat now than ever just to see what kind of farm he's in, what kind of... How do you know? Fiona, how do you know? We had a man, we had a man who contacted Liveline and he's, he's in, in the last heat wave about four weeks ago. He was out walking his dog. And his dog dropped. Oh. His dog dro- dropped dead. And then he he went to the vet, and the dog said, "Yeah, the vet said your dog has died of heat stroke." But yes, there was no. Exactly, but there was no. Exactly. The dog can't run up and say to his master or mistress or whatever, um, "I'm feeling unwell." The dog died because of heat. He, the the goat. Exactly. The goat so it could happen goats, to any animal. Goats, I'm the, sure if you go up yeah, to the mountain, yeah, but goats, there could be. A goat dead from heat stroke. Yeah, but on you the don't. Mountain. But no one did it deliberately. No one captured a goat, a wild goat, and put it in a cage. Isn't that the point? Like right. goats can't talk. Obviously, and my yeah. other point was, um, and all these activists, I hope they're listening to this. The cows that are put in for slaughter from farms yeah. can't talk. The pigs that are put in for slaughter that are being moved to an abattoir today can't yeah. talk. They don't have fans. They're in a very enclosed space. Why are they not like? Is is how do, you, how, do you, how do you know they're not in their own way? How do you know they're not all vegetarians, vegans, pescatarians? Well, they haven't mentioned it. I hope they are, since they have such uh, high views. On yes, I am. I am a vegetarian. And why are you vegetarian? Because I don't want to eat meat. <laughs> why do you not want to eat meat? Because I think it's cruel to eat meat. Why is it cruel to eat meat? Because they're substitutes. For, that's my own opinion. I'm because not going of, to because get into... I, No, because animals are killed. Yes. Okay, and you, 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 you're in favour of the goat hanging up there? He's not hanging. And he's, but he's, he's suspended. Out, suspended. He's suspended, yes. And this yeah, year has been... He, he, he uh, this year has been a lot hotter than other years. Yeah. So they have made... Um, allowances for that and taking the goat down. Well, that's Fiona on the live line with Joe Duffy. Almost Everything is a re-recording celebrating the work of Patrick Kavanagh. James Morrissey is the chairman of Cladder Records and he was explaining all to Oliver Callan in the morning. Almost Everything, that's the new uh, vinyl a re-release album uh, with Patrick Kavanagh. It's fusing past and present, so we've got all these modern Irish stars in it, and, in it as well. It comes out of Cladder Records. Remember that? Yes, it's back and it's producing lots of new stuff. And on the line now is the chairman of Cladder Records, James Morrissey. Good morning. Good morning, Oliver. Uh, how are you keeping this morning? I'm very good and delighted that this... the, uh, we're talking soil and the stony grey soil of Monaghan. Oh, absolutely. And you're a Mayo man, so... I am indeed, but grew up not too far away from Garrett Brown, who grew up in Clare Morris, and Garrett founded Clatter Records in 1959. What and was the idea behind that? He felt that that Irish music and the spoken word was, was in rapid decline uh, with the emergence of pop music show bands and decided to do something to preserve the music and the voices of people who probably might be lost forever and uh, people like Leo Rosen, Willie Clancy, Seamus Ennis, uh, poets, John Montague uh, and various people. Thomas Kinsella, Austin Clark was in there as well and Patrick Kavanagh. Yes. Samuel Beckett's spoken word album as well. Yes, with Jack McGarn. All these kind of rare treasures that uh, would have been lost had, had, had Garrick Brown not had this amazing idea. What sort of a fellow was Garrick Brown? 
he was an amazing he was an amazing individual he was incredibly uh, shy and yet he loved social company he was he was he was what somebody described to me once as a cacophony of contradictions uh, and in there in the middle was this genius who probably really did what he did in setting up Clada because he was fortunate enough to be part of the Guinness dynasty uh, and there was no shortage of money, but he kind of ambled through life. Uh, and that's when he stumbled across uh, the whole traditional music scene, introduced, I would say, to a great extent by uh, Kieran McMahuna. And the Chieftains are very important, of course, in, in the history of Clada Records. And Garrett and John Montague sat in a, in a flat in Queens Lane off Leeson Street and imagined this new group that would succeed and... and, and come after Sean Arrieta and said to Paddy Maloney, we think you should, you should form a group. Uh, Paddy wanted to call the group the Queer Fellas, uh, <laughs> but he was overruled by John Montague, who said we must call this group the Chieftains. Great. Great name. And of course, Patrick Kavanagh. He was in, Garrick Brown was in the circle of everyone who was to know in arts and the culture, and Patrick Kavanagh was in that uh, He was. Circle. I mean, Garrett Garrett ambled around Dublin and, and met lots of people and, and encountered Patrick Kavanagh, I think primarily through his mother, Lady Una Guinness, mm-hmm. at some parties in Lugalaw. But he, at one stage, along with John Montague, they wanted to make sure that not only was it music they were going to record, but they should record the spoken word. And um, Garrett met Patrick Kavanagh on many occasions and negotiations started I think probably two or three years before the album ever happened. Now there were a lot of negotiations and they took yeah. place mainly in hostelries. Yes. Places like the Bailey, Neary's, the Shelburne. And uh, one day Patrick said to Garrett, I'd like to record today. And Garrett said, well we haven't signed a contract and we don't have a studio booked. Patrick, I want to do it immediately. So Garrett rustled up uh, his solicitor, a man called James Cawley, who brought uh, a draft contract up. It was signed, and uh, Kavanagh, being a Monaghan man and knowing the value of a pound, secured a fee of £100 back in 1964, which yep. was not an insignificant amount of money. Very good. And probably didn't last very long, given Kavanagh's uh, reputation for... Um, no, but he was in, very in generous. And, and Garrett always referred, even in years up to his death in 2018, he always referred to... Patrick Kavanagh as poor Paddy. He felt that Kavanagh was not part of the inner uh, literary social circle of, of Dublin. In fact, when, when Patrick Kavanagh was recording his album, one literary individual said to Garrett Brown, it's really wrong that you should be recording Kavanagh in his own voice. He doesn't have a voice for reading his own work. And Garrett was aghast. And uh, Garrett replied in two words, which were neither polite nor, nor poetic but the project proceeded and um, he recorded the album and it, 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 like he has a, quite a gravelly voice Kavanagh at the time it was called Almost Everything uh, and it was it was close enough to his death wasn't it are we into the 60s at this stage he we are no, we're, and we're, we're, we're into the early 60s in fact I think a couple of weeks before the album was recorded uh, the poet uh, went into Baggin Street Hospital for some tests and I think they said that they wanted him back for more tests. 
but he was he was he was he was dead within a year of the recording being made. And Oliver asked about the decision to re-release the album. So this kind of has been half missing really for a couple of years until Clada Records. Garrick Brown obviously died just in 2018, and it's moved into sort of new management. How has this new re-release come about? Well, when Garrett died and in the, it, up to his death, he was very keen to 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 revive the al- revive this album and other Clatter archives, which were in 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 the vaults in the bank. And after he died, we signed an agreement with Universal Music, a licensing agreement, which really allows Clatter to get a worldwide access for all all the albums that we, that we release. And I suppose you know wherever people go. You know, from Mayo to Manhattan, you know, we all feel the stony grey soil yeah. of modern grounding us. And to get it going then, we felt there's little point in just re-releasing an album. Why not reimagine it? Why not bring in new voices? And we thought about it and talked about it a lot. Um, we said, well, look, at if, if we could get Bono to record a track for this album, we're on our way. And, I mean, it was amazing. Literally... Within a matter of hours, he came back and said yes. Wow. And he has recorded on Raglan Road. And really, uh, that really was, we were, at, we were at a level then where we knew we had something really special. You start with Bono, that. you're going to get other names. Absolutely. I want to play a clip here. It, it's not Bono, but it's, it's a voice that will need no introduction. And it's a, it just brings a whole new kind of dimension to Kavanagh's words. Every old man I see reminds me of my father and he had fallen in love with death one time when sheaves were gathered that man i saw on gardner street stumbled on the curb was one he stared at me half-eyed i might have been his son and i remember the musician faltering over his fiddle in bayswater london he too set me the riddle Liam Neeson and, and uh, memory of my father. I mean, and it's beautiful music threaded through all of these recitations, isn't there? It, it, there is, and we again we 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 invited President Higgins, uh, Aidan Gillen, Rachel Blackmore, one of our national treasures. Mm-hmm. Kathleen she Watkins. says Pegasus because it's horse related. Yes, Kathleen Watkins, uh, Imelda May, Hosier, and uh, I, I, I was we're listening to this last night, a few of us, and I was just thinking, you know, in a world. A troubled world when we put so much store on mindfulness and and, and meditation. Surely Kavanagh is as pure as it gets. James Morrissey of Clatter Records talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And from today with Philip Edger Hayes, how toxic is your workplace and what can you do about it? Are you working in a toxic work culture? If you are, what can you do about it? Sinead English, founder of Hilt Careers and author of CV and Interview 101, joins me now to discuss this. Good morning, Sinead. How are you? I'm very well, Philip. How prevalent are toxic work cult- workplaces in Ireland? Uh, pretty prevalent, I would say. Um, you know, we have a career co- coaching business, and the number one reason that people would come to us to talk about leaving their job would be toxic work culture. Um, really? Yeah. And not um, not working conditions, as we're hearing, as part of the Great Resignation. 
No, I mean, you know, and there is a, def a, a distinction between what is a toxic work culture and what is just, you know, a pretty boring place to work. So, I mean, there is a difference. But, you know, at, um, in the UK, 70% of people said they have worked in a toxic environment at some point in their life, which is very recent research. So I can imagine that that is going to be pretty much straight lined over to here. I mean, I, I my, anecdotally, I wouldn't really see it as much of a difference. Now, that's not to say that everybody who's working in one is going to leave, but about 20% about of employees um, at some point in their life have left their work because of a toxic work culture. Define a toxic workplace then. What are the signs? Well, the signs are, um, you know, there are five main signs of a toxic work culture. And I'm, I'm sort of leaning here on research that was done and published in March of this year by um, some US researchers. And, uh, you know, again, this is something that we would see uh, over and over again. It's not just specific to the US. So things like, you know, a disrespectful environment, um, a cutthroat environment, abusive environment, being non-inclusive and unethical. So, for instance, disrespectful, um, you know, a lack of consideration for others, um, um, just being mean to others. You know, we, we had a client who told us about a scenario where they were uh, being replaced in their role by another person. Um, so somebody else was coming in to take over their role. And they were in a meeting with about 20 senior managers and it was announced that, oh, now we are welcoming person X to the role. And this is a huge increase in quality in, in what we had before <laughs> in this role. Oh, and God. we're so excited. And the person was sitting there. Oh, for God's sakes. You know, that is, there's no need for that. That's no, just absolutely. disrespectful. Is, is, is making you work anti-social hours disrespectful? No, I mean, I think if, if it's required for the job every now and then, that's fine. But if, if it just becomes an assumption that your time is their time, then that is disrespectful and it's a lack of respect for your what other priorities you have in your life. OK, um, what's an abusive workplace? Is it one where your boss occasionally loses the head because they're stressed themselves or does it have to be sustained <laughs> abuse? You know, I think if it was one where the boss loses their head occasionally, we'd all be saying we work in a toxic work culture. I think the word would get thrown about a bit too much. Now, again, it, it's sustained. Sustained bullying, shouting, yelling at people. I, I think, you know, you'd recognise the, the signs if you were in one of those cultures where it becomes OK to just shout at people. People are, are coming into the office almost feeling sick about what's going to happen today and who's going to be shouted at and who's going to be called out. And again, I, I, we have all these stories that we hear from clients, I suppose, because they come to us because they've been in this situation. Um, another client, um, during COVID, they were, it was warm period of time, I guess maybe like now, just not as warm. And, and they, living in an apartment, they were working from home, they were on their balcony, they took a call from their, their boss, they're working in a sales environment. The boss was yelling and shouting at them so much down the phone that the neighbour could actually hear it on their balcony. Oh my and the neighbour who didn't even know this person very well called in later on to check they were okay. Oh my God. So it was just, it became okay for that boss it, it was their, you know, modus operandi to just roar and shout at people when they felt they weren't meeting okay. their targets. Um, cutthroat environment. If you're pulling the daggers out of your back as you leave every day, that's a cutthroat environment. Or have you a, a better way of defining it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you might call it backstabbing. Um, um, I better, you know, watch my watch my words on the radio. But you know, just. Um, being afraid that your colleagues are going to take every opportunity to move in on your territory. I mean, we see this a lot in, in sales roles. So if you've got a mm -hmm. list of clients, um, you know, if you're off for a week or you're out, then a, cl a client, one of your clients calls in, somebody else takes it over. 
So but this, like, you have to be up very early and keep eyes at the back of your head. There, there are always going to be competitive colleagues in any workplace. I suppose the distinction here is the degree to which this is either tolerated or even encouraged by yes. management. Yes, encouraged by management. So, it, you know, it depends on the tone is set from the top. And if the tone is that it's OK, um, any methods that you use to get to reach what we want you to reach in terms of targets or um, you know strategy that we've got for the company, if you can get there by any means, you know the the um, end justifies the means. Then that is leaving the company very open to a very abusive culture, a very cutthroat culture and a very unpleasant culture to work in. And Sinead spoke about non-inclusive workplaces. It's um, a matter of, you know, do you feel part of the team? And uh, we see companies spending millions of euro on promoting themselves as inclusive, in kind, um, you know, all of the opposite of the things that I have mentioned in an attempt to attract um, excellent people because everybody wants to work in a positive culture. Um, but, you know, non-inclusive can be just subtle things like you're not really part of the gang. Oh, you know, well, we've been here a while, so this is how we do it. Um, I remember a company that was, um, two companies were merged and for years afterwards, people referred to themselves as either, well, I'm from A company or B company. You know, this is how we do it. Even though the merger was five or six years ago, people still identify themselves from the previous company. So there was no coming together of a culture and, you know, people were being excluded from things because they weren't part of the gang or maybe they felt, you know, they weren't, you know, the gender that was particularly looked for in that organisation, that it was more male culture or female culture. Before you go pressing the nuclear button and leaving out, Mm. what can you do to try and change the workplace? Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, your your instinct is to, I want to get the heck out of here, right? Um, but there are plenty of other things that you can do. And, you know, it takes so long to recover from working in a to- toxic culture. You know, most of the clients that we would speak to when they do leave and get another job, uh, they are saying, oh, I should have done this years ago. Why didn't I do this years ago? Um, but there are even things you can do within your own company. So, for example, you could change to a different manager if the manager is the problem. Um, you know, managers, if they're allowed to get away with what they're getting away with, they're probably not going to change. You know, someone in the organisation has figured out that they're of more value to them doing what they do and they're prepared to ignore the sort of collateral damage. Right. So maybe change to a different manager. So move around them. Yeah, and uh, move department. Uh, you know, how, how often is going to HR of, of any use? Because, you know, I think when these points of stress come up, very often you find out that HR is also subordinate to the managers. Yes, I mean, that, you know, obviously one of the things you can do is go to HR and make a complaint and all companies will have uh, lovely dignity and respect and anti-bullying policies, but it's it's a question of how um, much they're going to implement those when these situations occur. So by all means, go to HR, but, you know, sometimes that just doesn't work. Um, many times it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And you have to be prepared for the fact that maybe that's not going to work because loads of people have complained about this particular person or this department and nothing has been done about it. And at that point, really, you've got to think, OK, is it worth my while keep trying to push this boulder up a hill or just do I see if I can move to a different department? Another thing you can do is just find an ally within the company. You know, somebody who feels the same way as you and, you know, maybe there's things that you could do together, you know, hatch yeah, a plan or just yeah. have your own... Um, bit, a bit of solidarity would, exactly. all, would always help. OK, so look, then if you do decide to leave, as tempting as it might be to pull the pin out of the grenade and throw it back in the door on your way out, I presume you say, no, don't do that. 
when when you're leaving, say I always hated you and walk out the door. Um, Yeah, and particularly when you're trying to look for a new job, I suppose you shouldn't mention the fact that you decided that the place that you were working previously was toxic, whether it was or whether it wasn't. It's not what a new employer wants to hear. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody, there's real red flags go up when you're being interviewed for a job and you're you're dissing your previous uh, or your current employer um, in an attempt to get out of there. So a couple of things I'd say here, you know, if you're moving internally um, to a different role and you're being interviewed for you know an internal role, uh, maybe in a department or manager that doesn't know you, they, they will probably know the situation in your current department. Um, you know the, these things everybody knows what's going on in the company so you don't really need to say a whole lot you might say oh I'm just interested in a new challenge or I've been in that department for five years is, and is, it'd be great to try something is, new Is that an acceptable euphemism now for, oh, for I, I, I can't stand the place Absolutely you know, everybody and, and people can will read know between, what you mean Yeah everyone can read between the lines um, or you know the company is, has changed and I'm interested in, in following a different path the strategy has changed often when one company gets taken over by another company that's a good opportunity for people to say, you know, the strategy has changed. It's not really in line with what I want to do. So I'm looking for a new option. Sinead English from Today with Philip Outer Hayes. And in the morning, former RTE presenter Caroline Morahan was talking to Oliver Callan about her life in L.A. and her new role in the play Looking at the Sun. But first, a little catch up. Caroline Morahan, good morning to you. Good morning. It is so good to see you. And fresh and well you're looking. Yeah, and I'm having major flashbacks of the first time that I met you, actually. (laughs) Do you remember the, the show The Café? The cafe, yes, yes. You I came do. on. That was my first telly. And thing. I was like, who is this? You absolutely blew my mind. I, I'm still appealing for the archives to be burnt and destroyed. No in case I'm way. Found that out. was incredible. <laughs> that was a good crack, that show, it wasn't was it? It was hilarious. But you were a big noise in, in TV at that, st- at that stage. So I would have been saying, hi, but, 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 miss, miss Well, Caroline. I was the one that was blown away in all, uh, in all seriousness. You were absolutely amazing. And that's a long time ago. Come on now. You've been in California too Come long. Come on you're, now. You're plum Would just stop? You know, <laughs> it was rubbish. Anyway, um, how long ago is it now since you went across to Los Angeles? Do you know, I think it might be, OMG, it might be 14 years. Okay. Something we, like that. Because you were, how long were you super famous in Ireland before you went? See, I'm using Americanisms and everything. For you. Super famous? <laughs> um, well, I had done the, uh, I had started with the fame game. That was the first TV show that I presented and that was like one. Oh wow! And then I went to LA. God, my mind is absolutely adult. And also, does anyone else feel like we've years. lost five years? Yeah, we have. Yeah, 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 is it have. just me? I'm no like, one knows. what happened? But you've probably been now in LA longer than you had the TV. Whereas in my yes. head, it's like, no, you were around yes. for, you know, you were famous for a very long time before that. I, I definitely have been in LA for a longer time now. You're right. Off the rails was the big thing. That was it? the big one. Do people still come up to you when you're in Dublin and say? Mammies do. (laughs) (laughs) The younger generation kind of go, do I know you? Oh, you're, you know, and they're kind of, they were little, tiny little um, munchkins watching it. And so they're not really sure. But um, the mammies are like, I loved that programme. Do it again. And I'm like, well, it's a little bit different now. (laughs) So you didn't go over on your own? (laughs) No, I I went with an import. I, um, I went with my now husband and... Yeah, it is actually astonishing to think it's 14 years, but uh, I kind of went on a whim, really, Mm. and just enjoyed it. Just, I think what happened was it wasn't a big plan and I went over for a few days and suddenly went, 
this place is quite magical. <laughs> and I loved the energy. I loved the possibility. And then we moved over six months after that. Oh, right. So and I have no because exactly. it doesn't always work out for people, you know, they dream of LA, they go, maybe they don't like it, maybe it doesn't work out. Yes, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to go over for pilot season. And I'm like, to get a tan? Like, what? <laughs> Although then there are examples of people that just, in terms of their careers, they like lightning strikes when they're fresh off the plane. And that does happen. But it's a city you really have to unwrap. Okay. You can't kind of, even going as a tourist, I wouldn't really recommend, unless you have people on the ground to point to where, where to go yeah, to experience it's very the spread city. out, isn't it? It's completely spread out and all the touristy things are so kitschy and awful. <laughs> but the real LA is, it's hidden and it's like, it's like 60 cities scattered everywhere without a centre. So you're there, So what is the real LA? Well, there's so many different kinds. Like Susan, your researcher and I were chatting about Larry David's LA. Yeah, you know, okay, yeah. and enthusiasm, which is basically Larry David going from you know, cafe to restaurant and getting into scrapes. And, and that's a huge part of LA socialising. Only brunching. meeting people in brunch. Really? Yeah, brunching, lunching, hiking, which a hike, by the way, is a walk. You know, like I'm going, we're going on a hike. I need sticks. I need water. I need backpacks. They're like, no, it's just a walk. That's what they call. Just in a park. Yeah, well, a bit like, I mean, there are so many amazing hills and canyons and all of that. So, you know, you get a bit of a sweat on. I was going to say, we've dodgy enough now hiking around in the heat they have. Absolutely. Um, it can be. And there are also wild animals. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we've encountered mountain lions on hikes. and Really? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And we had a little dog. So, you know, <laughs> that was no joke. You had to scurry her under our arm. And coyotes are all over the place. Oh, wow. And also they will eat your dog in two seconds flat. I wouldn't mind seeing a coyote. That was... They're, I think they're amazing. They're kind of like grey foxes. They're mangy looking things a lot of the time because they're all, you know, they're eating their wild rabbits and then the odd poodle. <laughs> like, that's... So is your life basically like uh, Big Little Eyes, you know, where they're all staring into the ocean and <laughs> drinking, you know, p- pint glasses of wine? <laughs> Not quite. That, that's what I'm getting. Although through... wine was a big feature through COVID. <laughs> wine was a bit of a crutch, let's be honest. And speaking of which, is there a culture, um, which is obviously unacceptable here, of drink driving over there that like completely the opposite it's absolutely horrific yes there is there's a kind of idea that you can get in your car after like being at a bar yeah like very early days we were over there we were at an Irish bar down in Santa Monica and there were loads of police and I was like oh what's going on they were there to make sure it shut at the appropriate time yeah which it didn't there was a lock-in but (laughs) they were like making sure everyone got into their cars but they were making sure everyone got into their cars and they were staggering to their cars. Go away. And I was horrified, absolutely horrified, and I still am horrified. Um, but completely, you're right, there is this This notion is the real of LA. Do it. Yeah. And Caroline spoke about her acting career. Do you know, I was thinking coming in, like, it's been maybe, is it six years since I was last on stage in Ireland? And I'm like, I can't, again, I, I feel like I keep going on about this time, but I, it just feels like it is warp speed. And I don't know if it's yeah. getting older or if COVID is a factor or whatever, but um, that was something I really loved doing. I came home to do a run at the Abbey of She Stoops to Conquer. Mm-hmm. And 
I've done some theatre here since now was uh, I actually was beamed in from LA projected into Smock Alley earlier in the year <laughs> for a piece my sister wrote which is how this whole play that I'm involved in now came about that makes sense I worked with um, Paul Nugent from About Face who directed my sister's play Olivia's play um, A Meeting of Minds and they asked her to come on board and help with the PR for this one and only that I rang her exactly in the moment that she just got off a phone call she was like wait a minute, she'd be perfect for a role in this. And I was like, tell me more. And they sent the script on. And I haven't done anything really. I've just a few bits and pieces since the babies came. Yeah. I've been full on, like in a cave. So it, it kind of felt like I've been living two lives. Like I, I was like, can I work? Can I remember lines? Yeah, but in, And in California, you did obviously lots of TV. Yes, yes. What's your kind of highlights that you love, that you have fond memories of already? I loved... Oh God, do you know, I think, I think doing Once Upon a Time up in Canada was definitely a highlight for me for so many reasons. It was a fantastic character. I played the, what Emma Thompson voiced in the cartoon Brave, um, which is the, um, the, the, her, she's a queen and her daughter is this rambunctious young girl and I turn into a bear. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the character I played on Once Upon a Time and I'm a sucker for incredible costumes and that process, them designing all of that and being up there was really magical because I haven't outgrown that little girl who wants to play dress up. I'm still very much that person. That's what you're doing. So that was amazing and ditto, I played Maleficent on a, a sitcom um, so that was an absolute riot That I can see that and I can see you doing Maleficent it was just so much fun and the costumes and everything amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I think working with Kathy Bates actually was a major oh, highlight yeah. for me what was that in? Um, so that was another sitcom um, that was on Netflix called Disjointed mm. and she was just so generous and so lovely and so herself yeah yeah you know, there was no artifice with her and not, I'm here trying to be everyone's friend. She just was herself, natural, warm, lovely. Because um, a lot of people are very on in LA all the time. And that can be tiring, <laughs> to say the least. That would be. And a lot of people are major divas because they have teams of people doing absolutely everything for them. So it was just lovely to see a woman who got her own cup of coffee and sat down and didn't have 50 people <laughs> Just hovering. And she could demand it if she wanted to. She could have anything. Like the number one person on a call sheet, the star, the star of a show literally has everything at their feet 24 hours a day. And that's why people go a little bit doolally because they're not in a real environment. They're not in a real world. And no one says no to them. You are Kathy Bates's number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> the late James Cann, of course, the misery. Um, you were also uh, an international judge alongside RuPaul, uh, Drew Barrymore. On the James Corden show. Oh yeah, that was fun. That was fun. That sounds like a lot more than fun. Yes, that was very glitzy. And that was like the scale of that show, like the studio alone. It was like, it was like Eurovision, the size of the space. Yeah. Absolutely huge. That was a great talent show that I was a judge on where they had an international panel of judges from all different countries, obviously, and arenas. So there were like stunt people, TV people, choreographers and then the cream of talent global talent came and performed and we kind of gave them the thumbs up or or the (laughs) so which which role were you playing were you the the nice person trying to encourage them along after they were being destroyed by others or what was your 
I tried. It's so interesting that, I mean, you could have done a whole program on the behind the scenes of that, the psychology of how people were voting and the reasons they were voting. And they were like, well, I really like this person there. I always kept it to that performance. So sometimes I voted somebody that I would have loved to see go through to the next thing. And I'm like, I have to deal with what's in front of me right now. And this was absolutely exceptional or this didn't hit the mark. And and that's how I did it. And it was very difficult. But and other were, people you were, were voting. To do, you weren't told how to, because sometimes in those shows you think. No, we weren't actually, which was really. characters. That was brilliant. We weren't told, but some people were kind of voting, kind of like Eurovision, like with their neighbouring countries. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, this is my country, so I'm giving them, you know, the thumbs up. And I'm like, well, they weren't all that great. <laughs> and Oliver asked Caroline about the new play, Looking at the Sun. Tell us about uh, the play, Looking at the Sun. Yes. Is what it's called. And um, you, 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 in your words, rather than me try to describe what it is. Well, it's a riot is really the short. It's a play that this is a piece of theatre for somebody who wants to get out of the house and laugh themselves silly. And we need to do that. And you often don't oh, know you need to until you're actually in there. Absolutely. Like uh, it's not. I love doing big, serious theatre pieces. Yeah. Um, but this is the whole world is in this play. Like there's a lot of poignant touching moments, but it reminds me of like faulty towers in terms of you're just crying, laughing the whole way through. So the the, the plot of the play, it's basically a group of uh, functioning dysfunctionals on holiday in Martha's Vineyard or some beautiful East Coast uh, beach town. And they're all just trying to have a great time and really, <laughs> you know, smile their way through everything. And th- But they're deeply searching for connection with each other, finding out what's going on in their own lives. Like my character is an absolute, (laughs) God almighty. My character through the play is convinced having a threesome is going to fix all my problems. And so anyone that comes through the door, I'm propositioning gay, straight, eunuch. I don't care. I'm like, this could be the guy. But then as the play unfolds, you see what's underneath that. And there's a lot of heart and a lot of soul to it. It's not just. They're starved for emotion. These Americans on holidays. I love them because it's all about there's a bang of kind of the Griswold family vacation where the dad is trying to get organise everyone. Yes, yes. The playwright, Emily, Emily Bohannon, she's from Georgia and she has literally like I have been fangirling on her since I met her because I didn't realise when I first auditioned for it that she was going to be there. So she is part of the rehearsal process, which is such a gift. So we're tweaking as we go. And it's amazing, like her comic timing is absolutely brilliant. It reminds me, did you see Little Miss Sunshine? Yes. Do you remember the dad in that? Yeah, yeah. That's the energy (laughs) of, come on team, let's go, 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 you know. And everyone else is kind of, oh no, you're mad again. And it kind of goes off the rails a bit and, you know, but but there's such beautiful resolutions that it really leave the theatre with a spring in your step. What do you like about doing theatre than say, you know, playing a similar thing on TV or film? I love theatre. I love the immediacy of it. And I love, as an actor, there's you can't hide behind anything. Either yeah. you're feeling it or it's not happening. Whereas in film, an editor can make you look like an incredible actor. Or remove you. Yeah. <laughs> or remove you. That can happen to Yes, it. and happens frequently. Caroline Morahan talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And on today with Philip Badger Hayes, the phenomenon of Flight Radar 24. 
When Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last week, the world was watching, and in more ways than we would think. By the time her plane landed in Taipei, it was being tracked by more than 708,000 people around the world, making it the most tracked live flight in Flight Radar 24 history. So what is Flight Radar 24, you might ask? Well, here to fill us in on why millions are now tuning in to watch little yellow plane icons move across the map of the world is Lee McGarren, journalist with Silicon Republic. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, Philip. How are you? So what is it? Well, as you said, it's a flight tracking app, essentially. It's both a website and an app you can have on your phone, and it just allows people to see a map of the world and little yellow dots that represent planes, and you can just get details on what the flight is and where it's going. So it's a very simple concept, but um, it's definitely drawn a lot of attention, probably because of who's on the flights in particular. Well, how does it work and who's operating it? So it started off, this particular website, it began as a sort of hobby project by, um, as they call themselves, two Swedish aviation geeks. So they opened up this network. So basically how it works is they use um, this open source software. It's called automatic dependent surveillance broadcast, ADSB. That just lets planes transmit their location to anyone who has a, this, this receiver. So true people voluntarily sending in data to this website, and they also then cross-reference the data from other sources, such as satellites, the Federal Aviation Administration in the US. They're able to get a good catalog of all the planes that are currently active that have transceivers. And most you know, public planes will have the transceiver active. And what do you think is the appeal? Well, I think it's an element of, I think they'd even say this, particularly with Nancy Pelosi, it's an element of sort of being part of a moment of history. So Nancy Pelosi's flight to Taiwan was obviously an immense occasion. She's one of the, the highest ranking US officials in a very long time to visit Taiwan. So people were watching its flight, seeing the particular changes and trajectories it had to make as it was slowly approaching. And um, as Wilfred Chan in The Guardian said, there was many Taiwanese people who were turning in. It was a very exciting event for them. You know, someone from the higher profession from the US was coming in. So kind of like a New Year's countdown almost. Um, yeah, and you get this as well with it's kind of a social media element because there's people who are tracking, you know, celebrity flights, you know, Taylor Swift and that kind of thing. Um, and then people tracking other moments of history, like when the Russian opposition leader um, returned to Moscow to face imprisonment last year. There was a lot of people tuning into Fly Radar at that point. So it was Alexei it's been a part Navalny. Of history. Yeah, I remember that. Alexei Navalny, exactly. I remember scrutinizing the passage of the Aer Lingus flight on its way to Beijing to pick up PPE at the start of uh, the pandemic as well, very, very closely. <laughs> um, what are the privacy issues here, though? And is it easy for any flight to turn off uh, its transponder or block flight radar from uh, monitoring its movements? Well, there's a thing. I mean, for flight radar, they have to agree to um, federal, what's it called, FAA data. Since they're using Federal Aviation Administration data, they have to comply with certain procedures. So if a flight doesn't want them, wants to be anonymous, then flight radar has to comply. But there's other flight tracking apps out there that don't necessarily follow the same thing. So there's another app called um, ADSB, um, which essentially lets people, ADSB exchange, and they don't block anything, as they say. So it doesn't matter who, what your flight is. If you're, if you're transmitting and they can see it, they'll broadcast it. And that's led to a few issues. One example, there was um, a teenage software developer who used a bot to track Elon Musk's flights. Um, and Elon Musk, it would post a tweet whenever Elon Musk was flying. 
and Musk offered this man $5,000 to turn off the bot and he refused. He got that information from this ADSB exchange flight tracking app. Mm. So, Indeed, I've so noticed there are some privacy issues. Uh, environmentalists are increasingly use it as a way of flight shaming celebrities who are getting private jets to and from different places that they could quite easily share a commercial flight with others. <laughs> that was also one key example of that. ADSB exchange, this one that doesn't uh, hide anything. It was true that, that people saw that Kylie Jenner uh, took a plane that was a, a 17 minute flight uh, in California. I think that was only like last month. So yeah, definitely being used to name and shame people's uh, celebrities flights in particular. So that's been that's been where some of the controversy has been with these things. It's tend to catch out a few small things. There was there was one as well, US media report in 2020. Um, they used flight tracking data. They were showing that surveillance planes were flying over um, racial protests take place in 2020. So this so in some ways this these this soft these apps can have an impact in ways you wouldn't expect. And Philip asked Lee how China are managing this information. China's one, that is a good, a good example. Chinese state media has reported that um, the government collected hundreds of these um, these ADS receivers um, and they cited espionage fears. So again, the, giving examples of where, you know, surveillance planes in the US were spotted thanks to this uh, technology. It's interesting that China kind of got ahead of that and were getting rid of these receivers, I guess, before anything can be tracked. Um, I mean, it's up to individuals where they stand on the privacy debate. I think privacy is a very important uh, issue for people. But the examples I've seen for these flight tracking apps, they tend to really only be impacting, you know, celebrities, government work, that kind of thing. For most people like you and me, we're just using public flights anyway. So it's not really the biggest, it's not having, having an impact on the individual. It's more having an issue on governmental and celebrity mm. level. So, uh, and personally, I think if, if, if more authoritative governments are having an issue, that's a, that's a good sign in my book, personally, well, open source. Also, on a more practical level, very, very useful for punters to find out uh, up to the minute information on their flight and whether it is coming in on time or not. That's the other thing. I mean, that's the only the main time I've used these flights. Some people are using it for historic moments. I've used to make sure my flight is on time and there's no delays. Because again, the flight radar 24 say they haven't mapped out the globe yet. They're still on the way, but they've essentially mapped out the globe. If you go onto it, you'll be overwhelmed by a mass of different colored dots all representing planes. It's also, it's quite staggering. It does show you just how many um, planes are in the sky at yeah, any one time. Yeah. So if it'd be tricky to find it, your own. Absolutely. I mean, if you ever doubted that aviation emissions were actually an issue, just take a look at the number of planes at any point in time in the day that are in the air uh, on flight radar 24. It really is actually quite overwhelming, isn't it? Oh, 100%. It's very shocking. I, I've been having a look recently and uh, no signs of it slowing down anyway. So, I mean, again, I'd say it was, I mean, and it's got a lot of traction recently. I'd say we'll be seeing Flight Radar 24 be used in the, for next, the, next, the next historic event, but they'll, um, they'll have to update their website because the amount of people watching it caused it to nearly crash. Some people were reporting issues. They weren't expecting this many people. So it's, uh, it's getting more traction. Lee McGarren from Today with Philip Edger Hayes. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.